In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, as we begin this new church year, I say this with all pastoral sensitivity and all the love of our dear Lord in my heart. What we celebrate these next few weeks is not Christmas. But there, there is this preparation period leading up to the feast of Christmas, which is called Advent. And that's what we're observing today and these next few Sundays and the days in between. And for most of us, this is rather obvious. But it's worth pointing out because unfortunately, I think, that, I think we've let our, our consumeristic culture hijack our holidays and teach us how to do them. So for many, Christmas began the day after Thanksgiving, and it runs through December 25th, because that's what the radio stations, the shopping malls, uh, Amazon catalogs, and Starbucks tell us when it is. And then, when Christmas Day rolls around, it lasts all of 24 measly hours, and we move on to the next thing just that quickly. So this is the usefulness, church. This is the beauty and the blessing of the church year. When we stick to it, it teaches us things that the culture cannot. And in the case of Advent, we learn that difficult discipline of waiting. Waiting. We wait with hope. We wait with great expectation. Not as those who who are playing along as if we don't know about Christ's coming. But we practice this discipline of waiting because as our Old Testament reading says today, God acts for those who wait for Him. So we spend the four weeks leading up to Christmas waiting, hoping, longing, and I would add repenting in preparation for the Lord's coming. And then... We feast on Christmas. And it's not just this little 24-hour period, but it's a whole mini-season of 12 whole days. Because by then, the culture has already moved on, but we, church, we rest and we revel in the love of God that has come to earth in the Christ child. It's not something that we move on from so quickly. So Advent looks something like this. You know, during our, you know, the Advent wreath actually got its start not in the churches, but in the homes. And so if you don't have one, they're pretty cheap. But during our family devotions, you know, during Advent, we, we write, beginning with the first week, we light the first candle on the wreath. And every day during that first week, my daughter asks, is it time to light two yet? Is it time to light two? She will ask that every single time. And we keep having to tell her, no, not until next week. No, not until next week. And we keep saying that over and over. And one time she said, oh, I can't take it. <laughs> and that's kind of the point. Now that's one way of doing Advent. I'm not prescribing anything to you that you must do. I'm just giving you something to consider. I'm merely pointing out the point and the purpose of this blessed season. So join with me in considering what it might look like to practice a little restraint, to wait, 
and to properly prepare for a wonderful Christmas. Don't rush there too quickly. Dare to travel this journey that the church year wants to take us on. Well, speaking of a journey, what a journey of a text we have in our Old Testament lesson. Isaiah 64. The prophet Isaiah is in the middle of a lament. He's in the middle of a prayer of complaint. Now he's complaining because he, by the Spirit's power, is looking down the timeline into the future, about 200 years, and he sees the siege and destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians and the ensuing exile. This is what he's seeing about 200 years in advance. And it troubles him so much that it causes him to cry out in complaint about 200 years before the actual event. So this gets into an interesting discussion about the way that God hears prayers and if God functions on our timeline, you know. Do prayers in the future affect events in the past? Do, do prayers in the past affect events in the future? It's fascinating. And it was a prayer that he wanted them to have whenever it was their time in exile, whenever it was their time in captivity. And I would commend the movements of this prayer to you today as you continue in devotion throughout this Advent season because it teaches us what it means to faithfully wait. First, Isaiah pleads with God to do something already. That's how this chapter starts. Do something already. He says, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. So Isaiah's reaction to this knowledge that the worst of the worst of the pagan nations would come in and inflict such atrocities and abominable acts upon God's people and his temple was to ask God to literally tear open the sky and come and deal with it. He wanted God to come down so that the wicked world would be put in their place. He said, get down here, God. Come and do your thing. You mountain-shaking, brushwood-fire-starting, water-boiling God so that your enemies would fear you and that they would stop it, that they would stop inflicting all this punishment on us, that they would knock it off. And in verse 3, he reminds God that he had come down before. He says, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. It's a reference to the Exodus. You know, in chapter 3, Exodus 3, we see that God came down to reveal to Moses his plan of redemption. We see throughout the book, he came down to deliver his people through the Red Sea. And most famously, what is probably in view here is that he came down to meet with Israel at Sinai with all that boiling water and all that quaking mountains and so forth. So God came down in this mighty way to establish his covenant with his people. He came down to set them apart as a people for his own possession a special people out of all the nations on the earth. He came down to act on their behalf. That's what Isaiah wanted to see happen again. Do that thing. Come down. Again, get down here. 
God had delivered his people from Pharaoh and all of his hosts. He had established his covenant people from, uh, and he had put them into his, the, his promised land that he gave to them. We see that in Judges chapter 5. Actually, you see that God came down and put them in their land. And Isaiah wanted God to do that again. Get down here. Do what only you can do. Are there days on which you would love to see God just literally crack the sky and, and come down to rain terror on his enemies? You can be honest. Yeah, me too. Wouldn't you like to see him snap his fingers like Thanos and all the wicked people just evaporate into ash? <laughs> he can do it, you know. He's not a Marvel character. He's the real deal. He's the God who has literally entered into human history several times to act on behalf of his people. We're not talking about a fairy tale. You know what's interesting to me? Go and Google later, not right now, go and Google the mountain that geologists think was uh, Mount Sinai. Go Google it later. And if you look at the pictures, it's an absolute trip. The whole top of the mountain is charred black. This is why even secular scientists think that maybe this was Mount Sinai because they have no idea how to explain how the top of this mountain got charred black. Pretty interesting. We're talking about a historical God who has entered into human history. And even if that's not the real mountain, we have actual, reliable, historical witness to God's mighty acts. They come to us in the scriptures, in the eyewitness accounts. The truth is that God can come down and he can do something about anything. God can come down and he can do something about Israel and Hamas. God can come down and he can smite our enemies. He can come down and he can rid us of everything that troubles us. So why won't he? Why won't he just let us be done with it all? It seems like it makes the most sense. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus was rejected by a village in Samaria. And James and John thought that they had a good solution. They said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume the village? You've got to love them, right? These Samaritans reject Jesus, and so the disciples are all pious and zealous. Lord, you want us to just call fire down right now? We'll just end this whole thing right now. But Jesus rebuked them. Why? Because in the person of Jesus, this is not the way that God has come to deal with sinners. And James and John, for that moment, had forgotten that they were sinners. Not just the Samaritans. It seems like Isaiah remembers this in the middle of his prayer. We would do well to remember this as well. Starting at the end of verse 5, he says, Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean in all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. 
So as much as Isaiah longed for a day when God would come down and make mincemeat out of his enemies, he took the time to realize that this, this is what got them into this mess in the first place. Their own sinfulness. So while we pray for God to come down and do something, we remember that the something that he wants to do is destroy our sins. Jesus rebuked James and John that day because raining down fire on the unrepentant was not what he was there to do. The coming of Jesus Christ is the answer to Isaiah's prayer that God would rend the heavens and come down. His prayer that God would get down here. We see it in his incarnation. In the womb of the virgin, God came down to be with his people and save us from our sins. We see it in our gospel lesson when we heard about Jesus riding down into Jerusalem to do what only he could do, suffer and die for sinners. On Good Friday, he came down to another mountain, to Golgotha. And there on top of that mountain, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, establishing a new covenant with a new people who would be cleansed by his blood. In Jesus, God has torn open the sky. He has gotten down here to do something for you. He got down here in the filth of your sins so that he could destroy them and rid you of them for good. Isaiah prayed to the God who acts for those who wait for him, as he says in verse 4. God acts for those who wait for him. The disciples waited on the Sabbath day when Jesus' body laid in a tomb. And on Easter Sunday, this mountain quaking, water boiling, brushwood fire starting God did something that they were not looking for. Stone was rolled back by the angel. You know what happened? The earth quaked because God had done something unexpected. God had done something surprising, which is what he likes to do when he comes down for his people. He had not only caused his enemies to tremble as Isaiah prayed, but he had completely rid them of their power. The enemies of God, sin, death, and the devil, they continue to wage war and afflict God's people during our time of exile here on earth. But church, Jesus' death and his resurrection mean that they will never wrest you out of his hands. His coming means that he shall have you forever. At the end of Isaiah's prayer, he turns, he turns from confession of his own sins to simple trust in his God and Lord. Listen to what he says, starting in verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. 
Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. So even as you and I recognize our own sinfulness and our need for God to get down here and do something about it, we remember that in Christ, He has. And through Christ, we've been made His people. Just as Isaiah was. Just as Israel was. And on account of this promise that we have for God to be our Father and we His people, we pray that He would not behold us according to our iniquities or deny our prayer because of them, but that He would get down here and forgive us. I spoke earlier about what it means to really observe Advent. That waiting, that hoping, longing, repenting, what Isaiah did in his prayer. It's what we do today. We pray that God would get down here and do something because only He can take our sins away. And only He can rid us of them for good. Only He can give us the peace and the rest that we desperately long for. That peace and that rest that Isaiah wanted for the exiles. And while we pray and we wait, we remember that God does get down here with us, here and now. He graciously descends to us in the Word and in the sacraments. As He forgives our sins, in these surprising and unexpected ways. He forgives our sins through water, through bread and wine, through the words of a sinful preacher, through ink on a page that you hold in your hands. And through these means, He rouses us to take hold of Him by faith. He rouses us to have Him as our God and Father, just as He was Israel's God. For yes, brothers and sisters, that same God who causes the mountains to quake, who causes the brushwood to burn and the water to boil, is here. He's here to say that your sins are destroyed, that you are His. And someday... He will rend the heavens again to get down here with you and all His people in the new creation. Even so, get down here quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.